I'm Dr. Jeffrey Long. I'm a physician. I'm practicing full-time in Kentucky. I've been investigating near-death experiences. One of the strongest lines of evidence for the reality of near-death experiences is called the out-of-body experience. Boom, there's that life-threatening event, clinically dead with no heartbeat. And yet at that time, many near-death experiences describe that out-of-body experience. And then boom, almost invariably immediately after that, they're back in their physical body. The great majority of near-death experiencers do not want to leave that unearthly heavenly realm and return back to their earthly friends, family, and loved ones. We're literally eternal beings living the tiniest slice of our existence here on earth. Our real home is indeed that non-physical afterlife realm. That's what brings me to my fascination in speaking to someone that isn't coming from an experiential aspect, but a studied approach. But it's definitely a topic that gets a lot of heat in regards to was it real, was it XYZ? So. Are near-death experiences real? Is there enough evidence that can show us that there is life after death? Well, I sat down with Dr. Jeffrey Long, who has studied more than 5,000 near-death experiences and believes his research has proven the existence of life after death. This was a very fun conversation. I tried to challenge his findings. I tried to see if there is concrete evidence, and it's up to you to decide if his evidence is enough to prove life after death. So we sat down for about an hour. We had a great time, very personable, very down to earth. Tried to have fun with this conversation. And I thought it was a great episode, so hope you all like it. I did ask him some bonus questions at the end that you will not get on the podcast platform. I'm going to release them across social media somewhere, maybe on the Patreon. So if you are looking for some bonus questions that I had people in the audience ask directly that I had answered, please tap into our other socials to find out where you can find this extra content. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy this episode. Let's get into it. Dr. Long, I really appreciate, again, you taking the time to speak with me. Of course, I would like to start off with you kind of telling my listeners for perhaps who don't know you and your background. I would love if you introduced yourself briefly just to give people a picture. Sure. Uh, I'm Dr. Jeffrey Long. I'm a physician. I'm practicing full-time in Kentucky, and I have a fascinating hobby. For over 25 years, I've been investigating near-death experiences. The website that we use to gather the accounts and then post them back up is NDERF, N-D-E-R-F.org. Over those greater than 25 years, we've accrued over 4,000 near-death experiences, so I've been able to do by far the largest study of near-death experiences in history. Portions of the website, including the survey, have been translated into over 30 different languages, so we're doing by far the largest cross-cultural survey of near-death experience that's ever been possible before. And uh, uh, some years ago, I published Evidence of the Afterlife, the Science of Near-Death Experiences, and went on to become a New York Times bestseller. So I've been pretty heavily involved in the near-death experience arena for a good long time now. Is there anyone else in, your, in, in this field that has studied as much as you and more than you? It's hard to say. A lot of uh, people have looked at the webs, uh, the near-death experiences that we have posted on our website. So anybody that's read all of them or examined them from a scholarly perspective has studied about as many as I have. So it's hard to really say. It's certainly been very influential, the number of near-death experiences posted there. Um, by far the largest publicly accessible collection of near-death experiences in the world. 
So uh, I would say, and certainly other near-death experience researchers have been involved in this for decades, and they they may have uh, examined as many, potentially even more than I have, but I'm, there's not many of us, that's for sure. <laughs> I figured that much. That's amazing. And so that's what brings me to my fascination in speaking to someone that per se hasn't isn't coming from a, an experiential aspect, but a studied approach, because you know it's a very uh, I don't want to say divisive, because I don't know what the stats are and who what people believe, but it's definitely a topic that gets a lot of heat in regards to was it real, was it X Y Z. So I want to ask those basic questions just to build the foundation. But what is your what is your process of vetting out some of these stories? Because if it's a public domain, which I'm sure you've gotten before, of course anyone can submit their stories. So is there a, a practice or something that you do to 100% if that's even possible? Decipher what is quote unquote real and what is not. Right. We have posted on the website the very detailed process that we use to assure that the experiences coming in are valid. First of all, I'm a physician, so that helps a lot to understand what they're describing about the medical circumstances that led up to the near-death experience and then followed it. So I can tell if that jibes with uh, medical knowledge that makes sense. The survey we have now is over 80 different questions. So people in general are not going to spend their time, waste their time doing over 80 different questions. It would take me like over an hour to do that. And then we post the experiences anonymously. So they're not really visible in the world just because they're, it has you know, typically their first name and first letter of their last name. So it's not like they're getting any visibility. We don't pay them anything. So there's no real incentive in that way. Uh, you know, finally, we're back to that basic scientific principle, and that is what's real is consistently observed. So if we have these extreme outlier experiences, um, you can validly discard them from analysis of the whole like you do with other types of scientific approaches. So bottom line is the great, great majority of people are going to fill this out with, with integrity and honestly. And so as a result of that, I'm quite confident that what we're seeing is indeed the reality of near-death experiences. And then finally, we ask questions in the survey. A number of them are asked in different areas of the survey in a redundant fashion, worded a little different, and we see that they line up. And then last but far from least, the near-death experiences that we have that have been shared with us on the website we use for research are entirely consistent with near-death experiences that have been published in peer-reviewed literature or collected with other credible sources. Amazing. And so let's say in the hypothetical uh, NDE court of law, what is the most concrete evidence that you would have to support the thought or belief that near-death experiences are real? Yeah, good question. One of the strongest lines of evidence for the reality of near-death experience occurs often early on in the near-death experience. It's called the out-of-body experience. Boom, there's that life-threatening event. Uh, in my series, they have to be physically unconscious or even clinically dead with no heartbeat. And yet at that time, uh, many near-death experiences describe that out-of-body experience. Consciousness separates from the physical body, typically goes above the body, and from that vantage point, they can see and often hear ongoing earthly events down below them, often involving people's frantic efforts to bring them back to life. There's been a number of good studies, including one that I've done, that assesses the accuracy of the observations in that out-of-body experience. And what people are seeing and hearing when they recover from that close brush with death and come back and check it out, almost invariably accurate down to the finest details. And remarkably, it's not just that the consciousness goes above their physical body. There's We have a fairly good-sized series of that consciousness 
leaving the area of their physical body and going elsewhere, uh, a substantial distance away from their physical body and far outside of any possible physical sensory awareness. For example, we presented on television where someone was in the operating suite, they coded. They had their consciousness go above their body, but then their consciousness drifted into the hospital cafeteria where they were able to observe other family members having a meal, just chattering away, unaware of that life-threatening event in the operating room. When they came back and checked out what they were saying and doing, he was accurate down to the finest detail. And there's absolutely no way the physical brain function can account for that. Uh, and of course, I recognize the example I shared as anecdotal, but we have scores and scores of those near-death experiences where what they saw, what they heard, far away from their physical body and far outside of any possible sensory awareness. That's the wild part. It's like, uh, you know, you, you have all these testimonies and, and stories. Like, it's, what is all these thousands of people just for shits and gigs, just kind of <laughs> saying a lot of the same things and, and telling these stories just to get some kind of clout or benefit. I, I have no idea. It just seems too extraordinary. Is there, so of course, the, the consistencies seem to be something I've had several on my podcast, not nearly as, you know, don't have the, the bandwidth of what you've studied, of course, but I, I've even heard some of those consistencies. And with those consistencies, is there uh, any, underlying consistent message in regards to what it's all about in a philosophical general question? Absolutely. That's been my latest research interest. As you study these near-death experiences, you see that they often bring back messages or become aware of what you could call spiritual content, for lack of a better phrase, that is certainly directed toward the near-death experiencer. But when you see that over and over, you realize that that's relevant for everyone, everyone on the planet. For example, about 10 to 12% of near-death experiences are told it's not your time yet. And that was a study that was done literally from near-death experiences shared worldwide, including non-Western near-death experiences. And so uh, that often happens at the end of the near-death experience. They're told it's not your time or language to that effect. You have more to do. There's more on your earthly life to live. And then boom, almost invariably immediately after that, they're back in their physical body. That's a strong implication that our earthly lives are meaningful and significant. But above and beyond that, in my most recent version of the survey, I asked directly, did you get any information during your near-death experience about any earthly meaning of meaningfulness or purpose? And a, a remarkably high, about 40, over 40%, as I recall, answered yes. And then in the narrative response they provide, over and over again, talk about consistent uh, overwhelmingly, we see that the near-death experiencers are aware that, yes, our earthly life, while difficult, is certainly highly meaningful and purposeful. We're here for a reason. We're here to learn lessons. We're here to have experiences that we can't have in the afterlife, in the non-physical realm of the afterlife. And so, uh, you know, that that's exciting. And again, we see that with such tremendous consistency and the lack of near-death, almost invariably, uh, near-death experiencers don't say life is not meaningful, not purposeful. So we're back to that. What's real is consistently absurd, and that's that basic scientific principle, very strong evidence of that from near-death experiences. And so co coming from a, a clinical aspect and that understanding, and you know, the word real gets thrown around a lot. I even said it like 12 times already in this podcast. What is real? I mean, I'm not trying to like hold a Shakespearean handout right now, but when I, when I, what I mean by that is, of course, people can, you know, I feel argue said that was just a, a trick of the brain. Then there's, okay, but what about consciousness when your heart goes out? Does that continue X, Y, Z? So when you say these experiences are real, of course, like the experiences are real, but what makes it real that it's 
actually somewhere else, that we actually are entering a different plane as opposed to real being just the experience and real being real. Does that make sense? Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. Now, you have to compare it to any other types of altered consciousness. Okay, dreams, hallucinations, the events skip around, they're much more likely to be hallucinatory. And you don't see that essentially ever with near-death experiences. Um, that intrudes psychotropic drugs. You see the same kind of, they're typically are more frightening, more hallucinatory. So near-death experiences are in a complete class of themselves of altered human consciousness. And what bespeaks that they are, uh, as near-death experiencers believe, and I hate to use the term, but I will real, <laughs> is that they, uh, they, they feel real. First of all, consciousness is typically about three-fourths of near-death experiencers in answering to a survey question said their consciousness and alertness was actually greater than their earthly everyday life. Um, there, what occurs during a near-death experience is typically very consistent in terms of the characteristics or elements that occur. It doesn't skip around like dreams. It moves forward in a very ordered sequence, which again is not true of dreams or hallucinations or illicit substance use. So you've got that going on. And then of course, most importantly, the information they bring back, their descriptions of the other side, uh, what's important there, for instance, love, how it's organized there, deceased loved ones, beauty, the movement, non-physical communication, non-telepathic. Over and over you see the sort of deeper characteristics of near-death experience that, that are something that you would not expect or you couldn't even dream up generally. Most people couldn't in their earthly, everyday lives. So that's, again, right back to that the, the overwhelming, uh, what we see, the consistency of near-death experiences is, is convincing to me as a researcher. Okay. Yeah, this is exciting. I love this. I want to tell you a quick, quick, really quick story. I'll be very sure. I want your opinion. I would love your opinion on it. So my, my mom almost passed July last year, 2023. She went into cardiac arrest, which I know is a, is a pretty quote unquote popular uh, occurrence, I think with NDEs in many ways, if you will. And so she, she, her heart was out for maybe 10, 15 minutes and, you know, down the road, like when she started getting better, thank, thank God she's a bull. She's okay. She, she started remembering seeing my dad who passed when I was 12, her brother who passed a year before and her parents who'd been gone for a little bit. And she started like randomly, she remember anything in the hospital. The only, the only thing she remembers was her parents following her. And then, and then my mom was like, not just like kind of not annoyed, but like, I'll come back. I'll be back. But I got things to do pretty much in an Italian expression almost. And then secondary to that, she remembers my dad, like an energy almost. She couldn't say like, it was like him, but she just knew it was him. And her brother saying, you're not supposed to be here. You got to go back. So it was that type of situation. I'm curious, A, what you think about that experience and B hers seems to be very mild, if you will, as unmild as it is a mild in a sense that it was kind of quintessential in a way of how you kind of try to imagine it compared to near death experiences that have been so extravagant and abstract and all these things happen. So what is that difference between my mother's experience that saw some, you know, familiar souls, if you will, compared to people that have this extravagant near-death experience that seems to be so vivid and experiencing so many different things when my mom seemed to be in that scenario. Sure. You know, having studied over 4,000 near-death experiences, it's far more common that they're brief, like your mother had, that they don't have remarkable detail, tunnel, uh, unearthly realms, life reviews. But your mother did meet deceased relatives, and I think that's highly relevant. That's important because my study and another major researcher found that when you encounter beings in, especially in an unearthly realm of near-death experiences, 96% of the time they're deceased. 
And that's significant because any other altered human conscious experience, you're going to remember, say, the bank teller you did business with or the family member he said hi to before he went to bed, but not so with near-death experiences. As your mother noted, virtually all the time, they're, they're di- they've died beforehand. In fact, near-death experiencers can describe encountering deceased people that they hadn't even known had died yet when they had their near-death experience. On rare circumstances, when we have a small series of this, Children that have near-death experiences may become aware of a deceased sibling that their parents had not even told them about yet. And that's not unusual. Yeah, that's not unusual for parents that are so grief-stricken when a child dies. They commonly won't tell their young child that they had a sibling, a brother or sister that died until they're old enough to better understand death and grasp that, And you know, maybe around age 10, 12 or so. So when they... Uh, children that have near-death experiences encounter a brother or sister, and they often communicate at length. When they come back and tell their shocked parents, hey, I had a brother or I had a sister that died, I knew them, and describe what they look like, gender, you know, boy or girl, invariably correct in this series. Descriptions, again, very accurate, uh, haven't seen any significant inaccuracy. Uh, Again, that can be part of the spectrum of encountering deceased people, uh, even that they didn't know died. Again, very dramatic when it's a deceased brother or sister. We have other people that will encounter deceased beings in the near-death experience. Again, uh, deceased relatives are more common, maybe three-fourths or so of people that encounter uh, deceased beings, their deceased loved ones, or loved ones that died uh, that were relatives previously. But they can be, uh, they may encounter spouses, they may encounter friends, they may encounter neighbors. And again, occasionally, you may encounter even neighbors or other people that they didn't even know had died they encounter them, it's sort of like, what are you doing here? And then when they recover from what nearly killed them and check it out, they find out that, yes, that person died prior to their near-death experience, and they didn't even know it. That's wild. And that's one of those anecdotal stories of, I didn't know that. It's just kind of hard to do, to deny, you know, if you believe it for face value. Right. And your point made, it's anecdotal when I tell one or several stories. Again, we have a small series, maybe a dozen uh, 15 that are that way. And in it, if someone encounters someone like that and, and asks why they're deceased and gets the sort of the sense that they had actually died, invariably when they check it out, yeah, that person died and sometimes immediately prior to the near-death experience. So just yet another one of those myriad of lines of evidence for the reality of near-death experience. That's, that's wild. I, I want to ask, is there a consensus or any numbers that show anything in regards to living multiple lives? Because the reason I, I'm good, I'm asking that question just to preface is the idea that when we cross over and we, people have these experiences, like my mom saw her, my father, her husband, brother, et cetera, et cetera. But with the ideation that if there are past lives, then my, do you identify the souls as you knew them in the current life you're dying from? Like how come if past lives are real, which you're going to answer, it might just debunk the whole question, then how come they're seeing those souls as one specific soul as identifying as my father as opposed to someone else maybe they've been? So I guess, A, what's the deal with past lives? And then B, follow up with the question of how do we identify these souls if we've lived X amount of lives? But when you ask about past lives, I'm going to assume you mean earthly lives that were existing prior to their current earthly life. Is that where we're going? Yeah, okay. So that implies reincarnation. Um, I I used to not believe in reincarnation. I thought that was ridiculous, but there's a ton of near-death experience evidence all converging on the reality of uh, reincarnation. That these, In fact, this happens 
for not a lot, but at least some near-death experiencers, when they have that life review, they're seeing part or even all of their prior current earthly life, uh, that's the most common time when they suddenly flip and become aware of prior earthly lives prior to their current earthly life. And this can be uh, decades to centuries, uh, even longer, uh, that they are aware of the, that they lived on their earthly life. Interestingly, they recognize that it's, it may be male, they may be female, they're typically just you know, aware of mundane prior lives. And, you know, nothing exciting. We don't have three people that claim they were Cleopatra. In fact, we don't have any. <laughs> so uh, they can describe often in some detail what that life was like. Interestingly, they seem to retain that personality, that sense of who I was. They were just in a different body. They had a different role. They were in a different earthly realm. So uh, that me and uh, the research I've done and other people that have looked into that, Again, it's not a huge number of uh, reincarnation accounts, and I really wish I could find, and again, these are mundane prior earthly lives they, they remember, so we haven't really found what I would consider to be the smoking gun for that type of evidentiality where they give information that you can go back and check that what happened during that prior earthly life and say, wow, here's the name, sort of location, and here's some details you couldn't have possibly known. Uh, so we keep gathering these accounts, and, and maybe we'll have that someday. But uh, certainly there's a, a non-trivial percentage of near-death experiencers that come back aware that reincarnation is real. And I guess for, for people that find that hard to believe in surveys found, at least in America, you know, it's only about 20, 25% of people that believe in reincarnation. So I recognize that's kind of a tough pill to swallow. One perspective is if you really believe that in, we're, we live in a universe of infinite possibilities, if you really accept that, then saying reincarnation can't exist, well, you're on thin ice. So I think in this universe of all possibilities, that seems to be part of the possibility, reincarnation, prior lives. So in regards to those infinite possibilities, I, I guess that, that kind of triggers my thought in regards to people's beliefs in general here in this earthly realm. So we have you know different religious beliefs, different beliefs on the afterlife. So if there are consistencies, how does that play into the role of people's beliefs? Do we see what we believe, or is there any distinction between people that have one faith and their near-death experiences if you've had an eclectic group of patients or case studies? I think the question is, if you have a pre-existing belief or faith, does that affect what occurs during the near-death experience or even the probability of a near-death experience occurring? Uh, interestingly, I co-authored a scholarly book chapter. It was called The Handbook of Near-Death Experiences. It was published some time ago, but our charge, me and my co-authors of that chapter, were to look at all prior scholarly studies and look at the studies of religious beliefs. And the bottom line is, out of, and actually there's been a number of studies on that in the past, the conclusion we had in the chapter based on our review of prior published research was that there doesn't seem to be any correlation between a person's belief or lack of belief and whether they will or will not have a near-death experience when they nearly die or what the content of the near-death experience will be. Now, their previous religious, non-religious beliefs can certainly affect their interpretation of the near-death experience. And we do see that, and we, we see that quite a bit. But as far as where they live on Earth, even non-Western non religions, it uh, doesn't seem to make any difference, for example, based on scores of non-Western near-death experiences shared with us. It doesn't make any difference whether you're, say, a Muslim in Egypt or, or a Hindu in the United States or a Christian in America or an atheist anywhere. Wherever on earth you have a near-death experience, 
whatever your pre-existing belief system, the content of the near-death experience, it's going to be strikingly similar worldwide. And what are those strikingly similar experiences and what are some of those strikingly different things that happen that would kind of go the opposite way of that claim? Yeah, it's, it's, it's much easier for me to talk about similarities because substantial dissimilarities or atypical near-death experiences are so uncommon, um, I, I don't really have a good grasp of, the, they don't really fit a pattern such that I could talk about the group of atypical experiences. So we're back to what typically occurs. Uh, again, no two near-death experiences are the same, and I want to emphasize that, but me and other researchers that look at a lot of them see this kind of progression of characteristics in what would be a typical, very detailed near-death experience. There's that boom, that life-threatening event. They're unconscious or clinically dead. We talked about earlier that out-of-body experience, consciousness typically above their body. They may pass then into or through a tunnel, variably described, but never claustrophobic. Often at the end of that tunnel, there may be a beautiful mystical light uh, described often as unearthly and, and brilliant and yet doesn't really hurt their eyes. Uh, and it, when they pass through the tunnel, they may be into a realm, an unearthly realm. And that's uh, often described beautifully. There may be buildings, there may be landscapes, plants, flowers that have colors that are so beautiful they defy any earthly description. They're, they're not any part of their past experience. They may hear music, which is beautiful beyond anything on earth. This is often a realm where may, they may encounter deceased loved ones. And these are joyous reunions, even if the interactions relationship was strained on Earth. Oh, and deceased pets are commonly described. I mean, you name it, dogs, cats, birds, horses, I've heard it all. This, like their interactions with encountering deceased loved ones, beloved deceased pets, joyous reunions can happen there. Uh, around this realm, they may be uh, other interaction with other beings, they often say that they're aware of, uh, we can say, God. At this time, they're typically feeling overwhelming senses of peace and love, or two are the most common descriptive words. They often feel a strong sense of unity, that they're connected, that they're a part of the greater whole. Very common in near-death experiences, about half or more. Also, when they're in this unearthly realm, you have to be aware that it's not like a geographically separate physical realm like we know. It's very much a non-physical realm. Communication is, for lack of a better word, telepathic, sharing immediately and instantly uh, all information and yet with no ambiguity and no possibility of that and often sort of the context around it. Movement is non-physical. The you know, realm is is uh, you know literally non-physical in the sense that they you know while they can interact with the environment, it's it's very clearly different from our physical earthly world. And very interestingly, when they're in this this unearthly non-physical realm, near-death experiencers will often have a very strong sense that this is their real home, and that their earthly existence that they've known for years, typically decades before their life-threatening event, really isn't their ultimate real home. So that's a little bit about, and then often at the end of the near-death experience, there may be a barrier. Uh, I've seen chasms, fences, streams, bridges. And then at that point in time, if there's other beings with them, they have to make a decision about whether to stay in this unearthly realm or return to their earthly life. Interestingly, again, though near-death experiencers have known their friends, family, loved ones for years, more likely decades, the great majority of near-death experiencers do not 
want to leave that unearthly heavenly realm and return back to their earthly friends, family, and loved ones. There's often a great deal of discussion, and ultimately, when they either make that decision or are sent back involuntarily, boom, they're back in their physical body. And then when they recover from that close brush with death, they've got their near-death experience to share. So that's a typical, detailed, if you will, near-death experience. That's the thing. The consistencies of hearing that it's home and they don't, they much, it's so much better over there. It's like, that's why whenever we lose someone and death actually happens in life, we're so sad that they're gone. And I was thinking about this the other day. It's like, yeah, but they're in my, this is probably, seems like they're probably in most likely, I don't know, I could be wrong, just in a much better place. So it's like, where are the assholes schmucks left behind? They got to deal with the shit. And so it's like the pain of just not having that physical realm. But if we, if we know this was something a lot of people believed in, if, and with your studies, we'll see if people swing on the fence or what they believe. That's like, oh, that person is okay. We're the ones that got to – I, I want to get my number called because it seems so much better over there in some sick way. That is absolutely correct based on an overwhelming amount of evidence that after we die, our afterlife, we are in a vastly better place than you and I and any viewer of this podcast. Uh, it seems to be that – Power, we, we're literally eternal beings living the tiniest slice of our existence here on Earth. Our real home, uh, our fear, uh, wonderful home, is indeed that non-physical afterlife realm. And that, I, that's, like I said, based on just overwhelmingly consistent thousands of near-death experiences all pointing to that and certainly thousands more that have been acquired from other ways with other researchers. Yeah, and then that's the peaceful aspect of it. That would be certainly nice if, you know, this is exactly what happens, and I have my beliefs. Uh, another question, how come some people have near-death experiences and some don't? You know, there's those people that may have their heart stopped, don't experience anything, and therefore don't believe in this experience. Yeah, uh, only about 10 to 20% of people that nearly die, especially cardiac arrest or heart stopping, about only about 10 to 20% have a near-death experience. 80 to 90% don't. Again, when I, I alluded to the scholarly chap, book chapter I co-authored, and that was part of our charge, was to see if we could find any demographic variable that would predict for a near-death experience occurring or not. And we couldn't. We looked at everything, age, gender, pre-existing beliefs, religion, uh, sincerity of religious beliefs, non-religious beliefs. I mean, you name it. We uh, beat the bushes pretty hard looking for anything that would account for that. There's only... Um, one thing, one prior study suggested, interestingly and seemingly paradoxically, that people that were closer to death were more likely to have a near-death experience. I mean, that's not a huge surprise. In other words, near-death experiences are triggered by a severe life-threatening event. So that's about the only signal we have that something's going on. However, uh, I seem to have, I think I found the Rosetta Stone that explains that. We had a near-death experience. It was just overwhelmingly beautiful, blissful. They were in that unearthly realm, and they communicated with that entity that they were very confident was God. And, you know, again, with that overwhelming sense of peace, love beyond anything we can know on earth in a realm beautiful and wonderful beyond anything we could possibly know here, this, this person having the near-death experience was so enamored with what was going on and what she was feeling and experiencing that she literally asked God, why me? Why was I so special that this should be happening to me? And she quotes God as saying, love falls on everyone equally. Everyone is special. This is what you needed to live your earthly life. And I think at this point, after studying thousands of near-death experiences, that's my best explanation as to why some have near-death experiences and some don't. 
So there's some deeper meaning with it. There is a reason as to why you don't have that experience because you needed that to fulfill X, Y, Z in this current life. That seems to be the reason. And we're not going to know that until, like, is, there that, is this an amnesia? Is that what it is? Like, when we come to this earthly realm, how come we don't, what is that barrier? How come we just don't con- subconsciously understand that we've been there or know that exists, or we just don't know that? Well, I think that's very important as a protective mechanism for us to live our earthly life in the way that we need to live our earthly life. I mean, think about that. If every single person on earth knew that there was a realm that we could immediately go to after death that was beautiful beyond anything on earth, I mean, what an easy way to escape all of our earthly trials, tribulations, difficulties. And so I think it's critical that we don't know our heritage, that, or if you will, our destiny, uh, that there is an afterlife that's that beautiful. So I think that is, if we all knew that, I think that would be difficult, especially difficult for people to slog through all that we, the, the stuff, the junk that we have to hear. One near-death experiencer, I think very appropriately said, our earthly life is literally the boot camp of our eternal existence. While we're getting on that topic, though, I do want to emphasize that people that do have near-death experiences as a result of suicide, and uh, virtually all of them realize the suicide attempt was a huge mistake, that our earthly life is meaningful, is significant, and it's not to be cut short by suicide. And they, uh, interestingly, if they had a suicide attempt, had a near-death experience, almost never do they attempt suicide again. For people that have a suicide attempt and don't have a near-death experience, tragically, they're predisposed to try suicide attempts again and again. And, and I guess this is a, a transition in regards to what you just said about, uh, I guess, suicides and ending life too soon. Is there any correlation with that or just in general, what's the percentage of quote-unquote good experiences compared to any bad experiences of NDEs? And do those bad experiences that I know exist have any implication on crossing over being a potential negative, like is hell real type thing? Is there that negative aspect potential after we cross? Right. Okay. That's a tough question. It's multifaceted. First of all, um, we don't use the term in our research negative because that's a perjurative term and even frightening, even hellish experiences. There can be a silver lining in the sense that the near-death experiencer can realize that was something they needed to confront, that they had to deal with, and they can actually have very positive after effects is what they call or tip changes typically seen after a near-death experience. Now, uh, experiences, you're getting into the, the scholarly term of art is distressing. Okay, there's like two different ways to conceptualize that. One type of distressing near-death experience is subjective. In other words, they feel fear. Well, uh, that can be, I mean, from the, the great majority of people, when they have that out-of-body experience and start out, the great, great majority do not have fear, but there's certainly a minority that do. Um, they feel separated from their body and they subjectively feel fear. By the way, among people that have near-death experiences and feel fear, the substantial majority go on to have very blissful, positive experiences. So fear isn't necessarily something, in fact, it's very unusual that it's felt throughout the experience. It's, it's much more common early on. And in fact, subjective fear doesn't necessarily correlate with what everybody would recognize as fear. For example, we had a person whose heart stopped, cardiac arrest, and he was being rushed in the ambulance to the hospital out-of-body experience, consciousness above the ambulance, interestingly, paralleling its journey to the hospital. So while this near-death experiencer was was in that state, angels appeared, his word, uh, a number of them. And I think just about everybody would say, oh, that's beautiful, that's wonderful. Well, this near-death experiencer was frightened. 
he was distressed. And so he was sitting here batting at the angels. Okay, that's subjective fear, subjective distressing experience. And I think you can see it's very individually oriented. Most people, when they start to ask about frightening experiences, their their implication is hellish or objectively frightening near-death experiences. You know, demonic beings, uh, sight, sound, smells that are you know objectively frightening that would uh, reasonably frighten just about anybody. Now that's a a very tr- tricky situation. There, first of all, the there's some controversy about whether they exist. There was a study that I co-authored and published in the Annals of the New York Academy of Sciences, and the the main author was an intensive care unit doctor, and he saw by far and away far more common of these what we call intensive care unit deliriums, and they're often frightening, and that's often what people confuse with a hellish near-death experience. I can tell you with my awareness of the compounding factor of intensive care unit delirium, the significant majority of previously published hellish near-death experiences aren't. They're intensive care unit delirium. I mean, they have their auto accident. They're in the intensive care unit for a week. I mean, they're critically ill, um, forever. It's very difficult to get any sleep there. They constantly have buzzers going off, monitors on them, tubes down their throat, nose, or uh, other orifices. And it's just very, it's very difficult to recover. So, not un- not uncommonly, there's that ICU, call it delirium, and that's much more likely to be hallucinatory, to be frightening, and uh, that's not a hellish near-death experience. That's, that's tragically what, what happens occasionally in the intensive care unit. Now, I do have a very small series, and I looked at all my 4,000, I can only find only about two dozen that seemed to me with a fairly high bar of evidentiality were truly hellish. In that small series, about half of them observed a hellish realm at a distance. The hellish realm seemed to be segregated apart from that unearthly heavenly realm, if you will. So when people say hell cannot possibly exist in heaven, they're correct. That was a very separate area. And from my way of processing it, the the beings, the demonic characters in this hell, in the unearthly afterlife, I think it's real. But I think that they have the ability, again, the overwhelming sense of the afterlife is a profound sense of love, connection, unity. So I'm pretty sure these demonic beings in the afterlife have chosen in some way to either be there or stay there. And think about it from this perspective. For those people, those entities, the spiritual beings that exist in that hellish realm, paradoxically, that's their heaven. That's their nirvana. They have chosen to be there, to be in a realm where the other beings are like them. They share their values. Um, They can act out in the way that's important to them as express their values in hell. That's in a very weird, twisted, paradoxical sense, their heaven. Um, And one can certainly, and so that's uh, the other important point about these beings that are in hell is that I think it's a very strong indicator that even in the afterlife, as we hear from so many near-death experiencers, we have free will. We have the ability to choose. We have the ability to make decisions, to choose where we go, how we exist. And this tragically, people make very bad decisions, even in the afterlife, even to the point that their choice is to exist among that hellish realm with demonic people that see existence the way they do. And so if you've 
forgive me if the that's the long winded version. Yeah, no, I, it's, uh, I love. Well, you know, there's no, no quick and easy answer to that. You <laughs> Good, can, I don't want easy answers. Hopefully, I'm asking some some different questions. But in regards to what you just said, you, you may have kind of answered it. But has there been so you're kind of to paraphrase, and if I misunderstanding, please correct me. There seems to be a potentiality for a place that is quote unquote, however you want to call it, just a bad place. And paradoxically, that bad place could be that person's, for lack of better terms, heaven because of who they are, X, Y, Z. So are there studies, are there any recorded evidence of near-death experience for someone who you would societally deem as an evil person? You know, like if there's any like serial killers or any bad people, if you would say, that have had near-death experiences and that correlated with their experience? Yeah, that's really tough. Um, you know, we again, evil being a perjurative comment. Right, of course. We, yeah, I understand where I'm going. We, we look at it as social and antisocial out of respect to our people that are, you know, psychologists, psychiatrists, or whatever that that often do this kind of research. Um, the, there, there's just such a small population of near-death experiences that have been shared from people that were what I would call evil, that I can't really say that with certainty. And I don't think anybody else can either. We don't know. There's just not enough evidence. There's mercifully not enough truly dark souls, evil, evil, there we go, uh, anti-social. <laughs> Got them. <laughs> they're evil. Yeah, we, you and I know evil. Okay, yeah. so we get that. So, and so does your viewers. I mean, you know, that that's what they're, they are. So there's so few people that mercifully that you know, are really uh, overtly, objectively evil that have near-death experiences and then are willing to share it that we just really don't know. Um, There's a very small signal from, we do have some people that seem to be, you know, self-described as antisocial and they seem to have typical near-death experiences. We have at least a very small number of people that I would objectively call evil based on their background. They may be a little more predisposed to have frightening experiences in others. But again, I want to emphasize, we just don't have enough data that we can really say that we can make that call definitively. So, you know, we'll see it. And that's an important point. What we don't know about near-death experiences, even if some important questions from near-death experience, what we don't know about near-death experiences outweighs what we do know. So it's kind of exciting to be literally pioneers studying near-death experiences and learning some of this exciting stuff that we some of which we've shared here today and certainly a lot more to learn as we go on we we treasure each near-death experience shared with us and continue to learn from each and one that i've studied yeah that's a good uh question that i would like to kind of not, not summarize but kind of cap off in regards to all that we discussed because you know you continue to study these near-death experiences, continue to have your program for lack of a better word sorry uh what else, like what is the what is the mission from here? Obviously, continue learning, but is there a, a holy grail of of evidence or experience that you're looking for in regards to finding more answers? Is there something you're? What's the next mission, and what is the next step to undercovering more concrete, definitive answers? Yeah, we're at a point in in, in history where the majority of people accept the reality of near death experiences. A Pew Forum survey studied. Uh, that was published in 2021 found that 72% of American adults surveyed said that they believed near-death experiencers were the soul departing from the body. So that's a good sort of definition of near-death experience. So people get that. I mean, nearly three-fourths. What I think we need to do is we need even better evidence. There's been, we need more prospective near-death experience studies. All of what I do in the great majority of published research is retrospective. We're looking at prior experiences. We need to do more 
prospective studies where we get a population of people that have a life-threatening event, interview them, and then see if they had a near-death experience, and then hopefully follow them over time and ask questions that would be relevant to that. That's where you can nail down even better the reality of their out-of-body experiences or the observations. In fact, some studies have tried to actually put targets out there. And in all prospective studies that did that, if they had an out-of-body experience, again, very small numbers of people having a near-death experience, their focal point of consciousness was never, to the best of my knowledge, directed toward a target that had been placed. So again, we don't know. But as far as something that would be extremely convincing, even to skeptics, the ability to spot a target or to do a prospective study and find that they're documented clinically dead with their heart stopped, and yet that what their observations they brought back were accurate. We have a few such observations like that, but it would be good if we could uh, get more and more of them and keep keep the, that going, because that's some of the strongest evidence is the reality of these out-of-body observations from prospective studies. Right. When I had Neil deGrasse Tyson on it, you know, he's, of course, you know, coming heavy on the scientific aspect of his belief system on wanting to see that. It'd be, it'd be interesting to see you guys talk. That'd be a fun conversation. But what he was saying was like the best way to do it is if you can, yes, yeah, study someone that catch them in the middle of the experience and have some sort of a piece of paper on the bottom that says this and report back X, Y, Z. Like that would be the, in my opinion, what he was saying, I get what he's saying. I'm trying to find the Holy grail of this is the only way to show that it's real quote unquote, which, you know, I took with a grain of salt, but it's like, well, what else? How do you have to do that? <laughs> I, if you're unconscious or clinically dead, it's kind of hard to write anything on a paper no, 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 or right, communicate. Right. Like you, 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 we would I, write something. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a whole other trick. That's some David Blaine stuff right there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the concept is, you know, the the, the prospective uh, study, you know, uh, spotting a target would be the most object that has been placed ahead of time and then bring back an accurate awareness of that target would be the sort of the gold standard holy grail if you will and there's there's still you know hopes that that, that we can do those studies they're very they're a lot more difficult to do than you'd think hospitals hate having studies like that done because they're you know just uh, without going into a lot of detail they just it's extremely difficult to get cooperation from hospital administrators for that for a lot of reasons fasting dr long listen this was uh, I appreciate you sharing this information because I feel like uh, over the years and cases you've studied, I have a lot more detailed questions that I would love to go over, but I know you have another life to live. So, or many more for all we know. Who knows? We're going to find out, I guess. Uh, but <laughs> I, how, how do people tell people, you know, you mentioned it at the beginning of the podcast, but uh, feel free to tell my listeners in regards to how they could find what you're doing or your books and, you know, find you in the movie After Death, which is pretty incredible. So feel free to let people find you a little bit right now. Yeah. Uh, the website with over 4,000 near-death experiences posted is nderf.org, standing for the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation. My New York Times bestseller was Evidence of the Afterlife, the Science of Near-Death Experiences. A book I wrote later was called God and the Afterlife, uh, and that went into a lot more detail of the more current, uh, somewhat spiritually focused research. So that's it. Just two books and a website and uh, keep busy doing my medical practice. And of course, that movie that you alluded to, uh, also a very uh, important thing. That was released in October and, uh, you know, it was very, very popular. I don't think it's in theaters right now uh, called After Death. Yeah, I, I believe they're uh, 
you know, Stephen, the director is mentioning this. You guys are dropping that somewhere uh, that can be streamed, so stay tuned. But I really appreciate taking the time here. This is a fun, fun, and thank you guys for tuning into another episode. Until next time, we'll see you guys later. <laughs>